All right, so go ahead and grab your Bible. You can flip it open to Job 42. We're going to be looking at the the final uh, section there and uh, starting at verse 7. But before we we jump into that, just a couple of thoughts um, as we get into this. What we'll see today is is how it all ends. And that's, that's for the man, Job. Right Again, the man who's walked through all that he has, but it's also for the story, the book that God has given us to learn from. So how does it all end? As we saw last week, the, the final speech of the Lord's was really climactic as the Lord answers Job, questioning him and gives him the answer he needs. Today is really the resolution to the story. And as we read this, if you were here when we first started Job, You'll notice that this final section echoes the first five verses of the book of Job. It it ends how it begins, if you will. And so just just listen for that. We'll we'll get into that. But a couple more things just to to draw to your mind. Again, this is the very end of the book. And so what are some of the things we've seen throughout the book? One, this is a book about wisdom. And chiefly, it's a book about wisdom as we face suffering, trial, difficulty, questions, uncertainty, right? It's, it's what is God's wisdom? What does it mean to fear the Lord amidst all of that? Recall also that at the beginning of this book, Satan came before the Lord and really he makes an accusation against God. He says, Job, your servant only fears you because you've protected him. He only follows you and clings to you because you've blessed him. And so we'll get to see a little bit of how that is resolved. Also recall that much of the story has has been Job's three friends essentially saying, Job, you've sinned and you need to repent. That's why you're suffering. Job saying, no, I'm maintaining my integrity. And so how does that get resolved in this final section? And then finally, remember what came right before this in the climax is that the Lord finally speaks. After so many chapters, the Lord finally speaks. He speaks twice to Job, and Job responds with silence and smallness, and then with repentance and seeing God. So that's what leads us into this. But stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to read 42, verse 7 to 17, but let me pray before we read. Father God, we give you thanks again that you have called us here. We give you thanks again for this, your word. We thank you for the book of Job that... You have given us by your spirit. God, would you now give us understanding, enlighten our hearts, give us faith, and help us to see your son Jesus and what you would have us to see of him this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I said Job 42, 7 to 17. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So... Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy 
and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kethia, and the name of the third Karin Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is the word of God. Amen. You can be seated. Let me ask you, um, I, th- I think that this, this text confronts us, and, and one of the questions it makes us ask is, is it worth it? Is, is following, clinging to our God worth it? Now, on the surface, it's perhaps easy to give a quick response of, well, yeah, of course, it's worth it, right? But I wonder, are there times when maybe our, our hearts feel or think or dare to say something differently amidst challenges and different things we face. Another way to ask the question of is it worth it is what do you get? Right? What do we get? What do we expect? What do you expect to receive from the Lord as you follow and cling to him? My wife and I watched a a movie this week called The Courier that is is really a movie about Cold War espionage. There's a, a British businessman who ends up being a a courier who brings packages and letters and really thousands of military secrets back from a Soviet kind of high up official who's uh, betraying the Soviet Union and really with the the aim of he wants peace. And so a lot of their secrets, um, or at least a good amount of them, actually revolve around the Cuban Missile Crisis. But as the story goes on, um, they both get caught, get thrown into uh, Soviet prisons, um, they're, they're tortured, they're deprived, um, they, they look terrible. Um, and, and the whole time the Soviets are trying to get information, trying to get them to implicate one another. And you begin to wonder in, at that time as you see these guys, was it worth it? <laughs> okay, look, look at what you're getting, was it all worth it for you? But then there's this beautiful scene where the Soviets bring these two guys together. They hadn't seen each other in months while they'd been in prison. They bring them together with the hopes that as they talk, they'll implicate each other and turn on each other. But instead, during that time in prison, the, the British guy had actually found out that uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis had been averted, that, that a lot of their work in their espionage actually turned out to bring the peace that they had longed for. And so as they're together... He begins victoriously and repeatedly and loudly telling the Soviet guy, you did it. The work that you did, it brought about the peace that you longed for. You did it. And as he's screaming this louder and louder, the Soviet guards rush in and they're pulling him apart. And of course, they don't want this other guy to know this. And you just see his countenance change. Where at this point, he's facing certain execution. He's been ripped away from his family to never see them again. He's been in prison and tortured. But as he hears what it all brought about, you see this look on his face that says it was worth it. Even though I got all this pain and this torture in the Soviet prison, what I also got was the aim that I was longing for, the peace that we were doing this for. And so he gives us that picture. And so again, I want to come back to to thinking about us. What do we get? Is it worth it? 
in uh, Christopher Ashe's commentary on Job, which you've heard us reference a couple times, he, he starts out really giving a kind of an overview of the book of Job, and he says that the book of Job actually dispels two common kind of fake gospels, claiming messages that claim to be biblical but really are not. It dispels them on their face. And we can think about these in, in terms of what do these messages say that we get out of the Christian life. Well, one of these focuses really on the externals. It says what you get out of following Christ is external riches and happiness and success and whatever you want in this world. It's just going to go well. Everything's going to be great. That is what you get if you follow and cling to Jesus. The other is a kind of stepchild of the first one. And instead of the external, it actually says what you get is the internal. You get internal feelings of self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment, internal feelings of, of peace and a positive attitude that will carry you through. It's, it's a sense of satisfaction that, that will carry you through life. So one promises external things now, the other prom- promises the internal things now. But if you think about both of those messages, there's not a whole lot of room for the book of Job. Now, if you think about all that we've been in for the last 13 weeks of this man's life, there's not a whole lot of external and internal kind of here and now blessings that he's experiencing. It's hard. He's walking through immense suffering. And so the book of Job really does dispel those false messages. But at the end of the book here, what we're going to see today is that these final 11 verses actually do give us a picture of what we get as we follow our Lord. What is it that he actually does promise? What is it that we should set our expectations on and what makes it worth it for us? And so first we're going to look at verses seven to nine and we'll see what happens with Job and his friends. How does this resolve and, and really what does Job receive and what do his friends receive here. So the first thing we see here is that the righteous repenter receives vindication. All right, so again, if you remember last week, at the, at the very beginning of chapter 42, Job repents. The first six verses, he is the righteous one who repents. And in that, he now receives God's public vindication, God's public declaration that he is righteous, that he is accepted. And so God here speaks directly to Eliphaz, one of the three friends, but he's really representative of all three. But notice what he says about Job. You may have heard it as I read it. The first thing is God actually describes Job four times as my servant Job. And this is what his friends are hearing. God says, my servant Job four times. This is the same phrase that God used in the beginning of the book when Satan came to him. God said, have you considered my servant Job. So Job is God's. He belongs to him. He serves him. Secondly, God tells us here in verses 7 and verses 8 that Job has spoken what is right about God. They have not, but Job has spoken what is right. Now, at first glance, perhaps that's a little interesting to note that because even in the two speeches that, that come right before this and Job's response, we hear things like Job saying, um, I've spoken of things that I did not know, right? God calls Job a fault finder. God says, you're one who darkens counsel by words without knowledge. And then God asks Job, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may, may be in the right? And so there's some ways that Job's words have 
gotten out of his lane, if you will. But here at the end, God says, no, Job has spoken of me what is right. I think what God's getting at here is that though in his complaint and in his lamentation, Job has, has, has voiced different things. He's, throughout the whole thing, he's been wrestling with God. As one commentator put it, Job saw God as his only salvation from God. Right, The whole time, he's, he's actually longing for God, and so he, he speaks of God what is right. Beyond that, the third thing we see about Job in this section is that Job is back to his priestly self. So if you recall the beginning of the book, Job prays for and sacrifices for his children because they may have sinned. Here, Job is called upon, appointed as the one who must pray for these three friends. If he doesn't pray then they're out of luck. And if you look at the final verse, final phrase of verse 9, it says, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So Job, God's servant, the one who has clung to him and spoken of him what is right, now offers an accepted prayer. God is really looking through Job to deal with his three friends. And again, remember that this is in the ears of the three friends. The three friends who have antagonized the whole time, what they're hearing is Job is vindicated as righteous. This whole time we thought he wasn't, but now God steps on the scene and says, no, he is. This also pointedly refutes Satan's accusation, right? Satan said, if you afflict him, he will curse you to your face. But what we see at the end is, no, God afflicted him, but Job has clung to his God. He has maintained his righteous wrestling with God. Well, what of the friends? Well, God describes them a little bit differently, (laughs) quite a bit differently than he does Job. Where where Job has spoken what is right, the three friends have spoken not what is right. Meaning that they have not spoken justly, rightly, accurately, truthfully, biblically. Their words have not matched who God is. Secondly, we see in verse 8, God says, I will accept Job's prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Not only have they spoken what is wrong, they've been fools. They've been foolish. Their words haven't been right. They've been lacking wisdom, full of just human understanding, lacking a fear of God. Now, pause for a second and just consider how massive of an indictment, how massive of a statement this is from God against these three friends. Right? Their, their words to Job in the midst of suffering have been unjust, untrue, and foolish. That's terrible. But perhaps you can think of times in your life where you relate to that. Or perhaps there's times where you consider something you've said to a friend amidst whatever trial they're going through and you see you look back now and you say that was a foolish thing to say why would i say that or perhaps you've been on the receiving end of that right you're walking through darkness someone comes alongside you and they say something and it just stings all the more right so we can relate with this we can understand what they're saying last week i mentioned the tragic death of a friend 10 years ago In the months that, well, it was really in the weeks that followed that, one of the most profoundly true things that we heard from an older, wiser, mature believer, he looked at us and he said, you're going to be talking about this with other people in the coming months, and they're going to open their mouths, and stupid's going to fall out. And it's funny, 
But in those moments, it's not funny. Right? In those moments when we're in deep pain and somebody says something where it's stupid falling out of the mouth, it hurts. Right? It stings. It brings no comfort. And so that's these friends. <laughs> They've opened their mouth and stupid has fallen out. They've claimed to speak and to know, but they lack knowledge. They claim that it's Job's sin that brought all this about. They claim to know what God was doing, and they spoke to that effect, but they were wrong. And so I think that there's a lesson here for us that we could heed this warning, this rebuke from God, that we ought not to speak beyond what we actually know when we're speaking to others, especially when they're in suffering and trial and darkness. Right? You may be tempted to say, well, God did that because whatever. Or you're going through this because of this. Like, I can see it. I can tell you why. But the reality is we don't know that. Right? I don't know why God does what he does. Right? All knowledge belongs to him, as we saw last week. I don't have that knowledge. You don't have that knowledge. And so we need to rest and say, God knows what he's doing. I don't. I don't want to speak beyond what he's given us. We, we shouldn't go beyond it, but we shouldn't go below it as well. And that's one of the challenges. What do we know from Scripture? Well, you can even just think, just kind of short term, the beginning of, uh, of this chapter, Job's response. What we do know, a couple things, is all power belongs to God. So whatever you or your friend is going through, it's not outside of God's plan, God's power, God's control. We also know that all knowledge is his and that he's bringing about his plan. We also know that God sees you in whatever the darkness is you're walking through. And we also know that God's ultimate relief and rescue from it is centered upon Jesus in his death and resurrection, but also in his return as the king. Those are some things that we can say with compassion, with sympathy. And so... Why are you going through this trial? Why is this happening? Quite simply, I don't know. But I know the God who does know. And I know the God who will walk with you through it. So let's not speak beyond what God has given us. These friends have spoken many words in this book. All in all, they fill nine chapters of, of Job, these three friends. And it, you can probably think of a situation where you've been uh, in a conversation with somebody and you lay out kind of your argument, your perspective, your thoughts, your feelings. And it's, you know, like 10, 15, 20 minutes of just, here's what I see is this, you know, and you want to get it all out there. And then they just respond with like one or two sentences and it shuts everything down, right? Your whole argument falls apart with just like one sentence. That's really what God does here. God shows up on the scene, right? He's not spoken throughout this whole time. They've said nine chapters of stuff. And now God says, your words have been, have been foolish and unjust, period. Nine chapters of words, and that is God's verdict. And so because of that, God burns with anger. That's what he tells them. My anger burns against you. This is a phrase that echoes Elihu earlier in the story. They've offended almighty God. It's not just that they've sinned against Job. They've actually sinned against God in this. But there's more. Not only is God angry with them, God actually provides the way of restoration for them. He gives them a path to walk 
for these foolish sinners where they can have their sin dealt with. Now, just for a second, put yourself in Eliphaz's shoes, right? You've, you've been there the whole time, and then all of a sudden, God steps on the scene, and this is all of what you hear. It's totally different than anything you expected. You thought you were right the whole time, but God shows them and says, no, you've been a fool and you've been unjust. You've thought that Job was in the wrong the whole time, but now God says, no, I want you to go to that one whom you have derided. He's actually going to be the means by which you are restored to me. And if you don't go through that one, you will not be restored. And then perhaps it's surprising, maybe, verse 9, they actually do it. It's very clear in verse 9. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they went and did what the Lord had told them. Though they're fools who have spoken wrongly, here in the end they hear God and they do exactly what he says. They offer their sacrifices, they go to Job, and Job prays on their behalf. Now step out of Eliphaz's shoes and put on Job's shoes for a second. Right, These three friends who showed up to bring you comfort, but have really only added affliction to you while you're going through affliction. At the end of the story, God tells you, Job, to go pray for those guys. <laughs> go pray for the ones who have been your worst enemies throughout this whole time. But Job does it. Job stands in the gap as the mediator between the three friends and God. Now, it's ironic because these three friends have no room in their beliefs and their perspective for a suffering servant of God. Right? That's been their whole argument all the time. If you're suffering, you're not righteous. They, those things can't go together. They equated righteousness and a lack of suffering. But here at the end, God says, go to the suffering servant because he's the righteous one and he'll actually be the means by which I hear you, the means by which I accept you. It's the righteous mediator who becomes their only avenue to restoration. Right? They've offended Almighty God and now they need a way back and it's that mediator who deals with their sin and their folly. So you and I are not too different from these three friends, right? You've spoken words that are untrue. We've spoken words that are foolish. We've said things we wish we could take back. Scripture tells us that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we speak those ways, it actually says more about our hearts than we probably want to give credit to. So how Will your sinfulness, how will your lack of truth, how will your foolishness be dealt with before this God? Well, Job here at the end of the story gives us a picture that there's only one way, and it's through God's appointed mediator. If it's not through the mediator, then we stand just like these friends who have Almighty God's anger burning against them. That's the situation they're in. Isaiah 59.2 paints a picture of this where we read, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Right? There's a, there's a gap. There's a chasm that has no bridge that we can't get across. That's the reality. Without the mediator, we only have a right expectation of God's righteous burning anger because of our sin and folly. 
sat with Pastor Bill earlier this week and heard him talk through Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. Let me read that. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So Jesus is a priest forever. He's a mediator forever, for all time. There's no end to his mediation because he doesn't have an end. He goes on, verse 25, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives forever, and it's a full mediation that he makes. It's full cleansing. It's fully saved. It's fully mediated. It's always. That's what Jesus, the mediator, does. That's his role. And so let me pause and ask you to consider what role does Jesus play in your life? Like as you consider, as you think about, as you look to Jesus, what, what role does he play? Not simply asking, are you favorable towards him? Do you have a positive attitude towards him? But like what role does he play? What does he do for you? Well, if you look in trust and hope to Jesus as your only mediator, your needed mediator, your sufficient mediator, then hear what Hebrews says, right? That, that your cleansing and your righteousness is fully dependent upon him, not dependent upon how your week or your day or your month or your year is going. It's dependent upon the mediator and his righteousness, not dependent on how righteous you've been doing with that particular sin right now. See, I think that we too easily fall into that. Even if we know Jesus is our mediator, we can easily begin to look at our own righteousness, at our own obedience or our own lack of or our own struggle with this particular sin. And we think that that's what defines us rather than Jesus, our mediator. It's as if we're standing next to a bridge and we don't dare cross it. We want to do it on our own. Sometimes that might look like in the midst of sin, you have intense shame or intense conviction and you think I, I can't dare go to God right now I don't want to go to God right now I don't want to speak to him because in my sin I'm not worthy perhaps you go the other way and you think man this is a really good week I can't think of hardly any sin that I've committed this week it's this is going great right now and this is just a season of victory and blessing and it's it's good and you think I can definitely go to God right now. Either one of those options is a total neglect of Jesus as your mediator. Either one of those options looks at the bridge who crosses the gap you can't cross and acts like that bridge isn't there. And so let me encourage you this week, today, as you find yourself convicted of sin or as you find yourself walking in obedience, know that your mediation, your acceptance, your cleansing with God is based upon this eternal priest. You can only draw near to God through him. Remember that because it's so easy to forget. But some of you, I would imagine, when I ask, how do you see Jesus? What role does he play in your life? Perhaps you don't see him as your mediator. Perhaps you're favorable towards him. You're positive towards him. You think he's good and you need him, but you're like, I, I don't know if he's my mediator. I don't know if he's my only mediator. Maybe I just, maybe you think that he's there to give you 
positive feelings and help you through the day or help you today and this week. But if you don't see him as mediator, you've really missed Jesus. If he's not your mediator, you've missed what he came to do. You're like Job's friends, rightly expecting God's burning anger. But if, if Jesus, if you don't see him as your mediator, also know that just like in this story, God provides the mediator for the friends, God has provided the only mediator, the only path, the only way to him. And you can draw fully near to God through Jesus and through him alone. And so if you don't look to Jesus as your mediator, know that you need to. Trust him as your mediator. Well, what do we get? What we see in this first part of the story is we get God's acceptance. We get righteousness through our mediator. And we go on, verses 10 to 17. Job's repented, Job's mediated, but now the Lord restores to Job all that he has lost. So first we see that the Lord restores Job's fortunes. He has twice as much as he had before. We see that in verse 10. In verse 12, we read that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. We get this description of his livestock. It's the same four categories of livestock as in chapter 1, and they're all exactly doubled. Okay, it's, it's, they're giving us a picture. It is, he is literally doubly blessed now. Secondly, the Lord provides comfort and sympathy for Job. Remember at the beginning of the story, after he suffered, his wife told him, curse God and die. No comfort there. Three friends showed up to bring him comfort, and they sat silent for seven days. Maybe a little bit of comfort. But then they opened their mouths and stupid fell out. No comfort from them. But now at the end of it all, verse 11, God brings Job's brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they sit with him, and they bring him sympathy and comfort. For all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. The same sovereign God who has brought this affliction upon Job through Satan is now the same sovereign God who brings comfort, sympathy, help, people to Job. Thirdly, we see that the Lord provides children. Right? If you look in verse 13, he had also seven sons and three daughters. In the beginning of the story, he had seven sons and three daughters, 10 children. But you might note these children aren't doubled. Everything else is doubled, but now he still just has the same number of children as he had at the beginning. What's going on there? Well, unlike sheep and camels, these are Job's children. These are humans. These are children that he loved. Children aren't just a thing that can be replaced like sheep or cattle. Job has 10 children now, but he also still has 10 lost children. God has given 10 children, but God has also taken 10 children. There's still sorrow. There's still loss, even amidst the blessing. God doesn't simply replace his children. He blesses him, but you also, I think, see God's compassion towards him in this. And then we hear more about his daughters here. We get their names. We hear that there's no women so beautiful in the land and that they even have an inheritance among the brothers. It's a picture of just abundance. Like this is how blessed he is this far. And as I asked in, in uh, chapter one, who wouldn't want to be Job here? <laughs> this is a beautiful 
picture. So just as at the beginning, Job is a priestly mediator and Job is richly blessed. But how does it end? Well, look at the final two verses, 16 and 17. After this, Job lived 140 years. He was an old man and full of days. Job lived a long and full and blessed life. He knew his sons, his son's sons, his, his great-grandsons. He, he knew his great-grandchildren. He saw the blessing carry on to them. Who wouldn't want to be Job? Job here is a, a picture of receiving the blessings of wisdom. Right? If, you, if you look at Proverbs 3, we read that length of days and years of life and peace come to those who are wise. Right? Job is a picture of wisdom where the friends are a picture of folly. And now he receives God's free and gracious blessing. But then we get to verse 17. And there's three words that just kind of stand out at the end of this story. And Job died. Just like you, just like me, the end for Job's life is death. He receives God's abundant blessing. He receives God's vindication. But there's a little bit of an element of not quite a happily ever after here. But Job does give us a picture here, a picture that says, it is worth it to follow this God in the end, because in the end, what you receive is God's vindication and God's blessing. Let me read James 5, because James actually takes Job and applies it for us. So read, you'll see this at the bottom of your outline. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job was steadfast. He waited. He persevered through intense difficulty. The Lord's aim in Job's life was compassion and mercy. Or you can even think Job saw God through all of this. He received a greater revelation of God. And then at the end, he gets his vindication and his blessing. But notice how James applies all of this to us. He says, at the very beginning, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And even look to the example of Job who perseveres, who is steadfast, who waits until the end. Is it worth it? Is Jesus worth it? What do you get? Well, contrary to those false claiming to be biblical but not so much messages, we don't always get all the external and internal things that we long for in this life, right? The, the life in this world is hard. Life in this world as a Christian is hard. Job's life has painted a picture of that for us. He's journeyed through trials and difficulty and suffering, dark and heavy burdens. As one commentator says, this life is warfare and waiting. As we read from Revelation 2 earlier, Jesus tells us there, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That promise of Jesus there is exactly the blessing that Job needs and that Job 
receives in the end is that he will not be hurt by the second death. That he will be raised to life through Jesus, his mediator, and he'll receive the crown of life for you too. If Jesus is your mediator, that promise is for you that you will receive the crown of life and that though your life in this world will have, and he died and she died, that once you don that crown of life, that phrase will not apply. That phrase will not be written about you. And so in the here and now, how is your steadfastness? How is your patience? Right? Does, does looking at Job, does it help you wade through the difficulty, the suffering, the trial, the unknown? Does it help you long for what is still yet to come in the end? You may know more suffering in this life than you ever dared imagine. I think that that's true even though my life isn't that long yet. There's more suffering than I wish there was, probably for you too. But know that in the end, those who follow and love God will be blessed and we will receive vindication where God says, you are righteous through Jesus, my son, who is your only mediator. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you know us, that you watch us, that you provide for us and care for us. God, we thank you that you've given us everything in your son, Jesus. Father, help us to trust him, help us to look to him, and help us to cling to him amidst the, the challenges and temptations and sins that we face. But Jesus, we praise you that you stand as our mediator forever, and we long for you and for the blessings that you'll give us one day. Amen.